This is Roger Hallam, and you're listening to Designing the Revolution. This is talk for part one, the inevitable revolution. There's a meteorite heading towards New York. It's not so big that it's going to destroy the whole world, but it's not a little thing either. It's going to destroy the whole of the city of New York. It's inevitably coming through space. It's going to land. It's going to cause mass death. It's definitely going to happen. So the physical event is going to happen. The meteorite is going to land. And the social event is inevitable as well. The mass death of people in New York, the destruction of millions of buildings, uh, social disruption, political disruption, fiscal consequences, and all the rest of it. So I'm starting with that scenario to show that in certain circumstances, the idea of having a category of physical activity and then a separate category of social activity makes no sense. Often it does. But in this particular circumstance, the meteorite is the physical event. The destruction of New York is the social event. And they're inseparable. It's just one thing. So it makes sense to talk about it like it's one thing. It's inevitable and it's inevitable. The second thing about this example is it's a simple situation. So again, most situations, most social situations are complex. They're difficult to predict. There's lots of different things, lots of different moving parts. But not every social situation is complex. Some social situations are simple. In other words, in this case, there's a meteorite heading to New York and it's going to cause massive social disruption. That's a simple system. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. There's no argument about it. So I've introduced this, um, this pivotal um, podcast with this example because I'm going to try and persuade you of the reality that there is going to be this inevitable revolution. So when I say inevitable revolution, I want to emphasize I'm not being rhetorical. It's not that I'm against rhetoric. It's, um, it's just that that's not what we're talking about in this podcast. What we're talking about is something that's actually going to happen. It's, I'm not saying inevitable revolution to try and you know, empower everyone and get everyone on the go or anything. It's because it is inevitable. And I also don't mean it's inevitable in the sense of some sort of theory of history, you know, like Marxist view of revolution, that history is moving in a particular direction and that makes revolution inevitable. Like it might make it inevitable, probably doesn't, but that's not all I'm talking about. I'm talking about a third scenario, which is where an inevitable physical event, namely a whole series of 9-11-esque climate catastrophes, impact upon the social sphere to such an extent that they make social disruption and therefore revolutionary uh, episodes inevitable because of the extent of their force 
just like the situation with the meteorite. Okay, so that's what we're looking at. So let's look in more detail at all this. So there's an important book which you might want to check out called States and Social Revolution, published in 1979. And it's like a seminal text in the sociology of revolution. And its basic argument is that the French Revolution, the Russian and the Chinese Revolution were arguably inevitable. They were socially determined, as the phrase goes. And the reason for that is that at a certain point, each of those states entered into a fiscal crisis of such depth that it made the collapse of the state and the social revolution inevitable. So the fiscal crisis of the state basically means the state, the regime, the government runs out of money and it can no longer serve its basic responsibilities such as feeding people and therefore it's locked in. Now, you can make, you know, arguments for and against this, but the, the basic situation is at some point it's a done deal. Whether that's two weeks before the social revolution or uh, two months or two years, we can see where the, where the author's going. So let's look at this in a little bit more detail. What are the dynamics that are going on here? So the first one I want to talk about, which you're probably familiar with, is the frog in the boiling pot scenario. So as you probably know, like this is a situation where something gets worse and worse, but it gets worse sort of gradually. People don't realise it. And then at a certain point, the frog dies, like the social class. So the classic example of this uh, is the treatment of Jews in Nazi Germany in the 1930s. You know, it started off with with the Jews being treated badly in the street and then the windows of the uh, properties were smashed and then they had to be put into camps and then they were taken off to the death camps. And this happened over 10, 15 years. And so at each stage, it wasn't obvious what was going on and so the argument goes that people just didn't bother and to a certain extent there's a echo of that and maybe it'll become more of an echo in what's happening in the UK at the moment so on the news this week it says 500 people a week are dying um, due to queues and ambulance delays in the NHS now you know if that had been said five ten years ago there'd be you know, thousands of people on the street, but it sort of caught up on us gradually. And it's just like, yeah, it's terrible, but nothing's really happening. And when it gets to a thousand or two thousand, there's a good bet that it'll just carry on. And similarly with people going hungry because they can't afford to eat or eat, like 10, 20 years ago, that would be, you know, a cause of big social disruption. Now it's like people have got used to it. So, an example that actually happened was Katrina uh, in 2005, when there was a massive storm in New Orleans. Um, the army engineers had been saying for years and years that the levee wouldn't hold, and each storm it got higher up, but nothing happened. There were frogs in, in the pot, as it were, and then suddenly, bang, it went over the top of the levees. 2,000 people died, I think, a million refugees. And it was like everyone was in shock, even though it was obvious. 
And a fourth example, which hasn't really happened yet, but you might want to note it down, is is the situation in Phoenix, Arizona. So I heard a year or two ago, you know, a sort of frontline engineer type guy going, it's just a matter of time before, you know, it's 50, 55 degrees in, in Phoenix, because right in the middle of the desert. And because of that, or coincidentally with it, the electricity fails and um, the air conditioning goes off and 50,000 people die of heat. And that comes out of nowhere. Like everyone sort of knows we're going to be heading towards that. And as the engineer said, uh, it's a matter of, of when, not if. So you can see how these things happen and everyone tries to be smart, of course, after, afterwards. But in the run-up to it, it's really difficult. People get into this denial syndrome. So related to this is what what could be called the exponential function or not understanding the exponential function. So I think some famous scientists said, you know, the biggest problem with the human race is they don't understand the exp exponential function. So what this means is, you know, things get worse, but they don't get worse in a nice linear, gradual way. They get worse and then they get loads, loads worse, and then they get so much worse you couldn't even imagine it. So it's like this curve going up towards vertical. So one of the most standard routines here in history is state borrowing or debt more generally. And this has been going on for thousands of years and it's boringly predictable, you might say. But basically a state borrows money and then it borrows more money and because it's all powerful, it, it's, no one's holding it to account, so it becomes deluded and the officers of the state, you know, lie to the to the monarch or whatever and and they start having to get loans to pay interest and then loans to pay the interest on the interest and before you know it the whole thing crashes. So for instance in the French Revolution I think finally the courtier, the economics minister came to see the king and said the French state's going to run out of money in six weeks. And it was like, wham, bam, out of nowhere. Well, it wasn't really. It was because of some toxic mixture of, you know, denial and lying and pushing things under the carpet and all the rest of it. So as I think I've mentioned already, a similar, but, you know, identical social dynamic happened with 2008. And in the big short, the guys go to Florida and they see that people with hardly any money have got five mortgages and they're going to get more loans to pay the interest on the mortgages and blah, blah, blah. And they know it's going to collapse. I mean, they know totally it's going to collapse, you know, within a month, two months, because the exponential curve is just going to shoot upwards and it's just not sustainable. And the whole system is going to crash, which, of course, is what it did. So don't think this isn't, you know, some, this isn't just in terms of Wall Street or big states. It happens right across human society. So, for instance, you may have this experience of looking at a sibling's business or your son and daughter's business or whatever it is. And, you know, most of the time you look at a friend's business or someone's business in your family and it's trending along, it's quite complex and things are going quite well and other things aren't going so well. But then sometimes 
it's just really bad and you know with absolute certainty it's done you know this business is going to crash it's going to go bankrupt so your brother might say to you oh i've got you know ten thousand pounds coming in each week in the business but you say look you owe fifty thousand pounds in two weeks you're just not going to be able to pay it and then you look through his papers you know after the chat and you find there's another fifty thousand pounds coming in to be paid back within two months that's it it's done <laughs> you just need to tell the guy it's done because it is done so that's the exponential function so let's look at the process of this inevitable uh, collapse of states into social revolution in a little bit more detail then so we've established that standard routine here is debt um, and that debt can be created by um, obviously borrowing loads of money but it also can be exacerbated as we will no doubt find out in the next decade through natural disasters or not so natural disasters as you might call them nowadays uh, which creates an even bigger fiscal crisis so these two things combine together but it's useful to look at the under end of the equation, as it were, is to look at the people on the ground. So you've got the state in this downward spiral, and that connects with the reality of of people's living conditions. So what's interesting here is this interaction between the physical and the social, a bit like the meteorite. <laughs> so what I mean by that is often people you know, are quite poor, but they have some surplus to spend on social events and, you know, creativity and whatnot. So let's say they've got £100 a week spare. So, you know, they're doing pretty much okay. You know, not dead rich, but they're okay. And then it goes down to £50. Well, they're going to have to cut back, but again, it's not so bad. And then they have nothing, no surplus. So they're really miserable, but they've got enough to eat. They can still heat the house. And then they go into minus £50 a week. In other words, they can't afford to eat, or there simply isn't food available, or both. Now, what happens then is a phase transition, as you might call it, from the social to the physical. In other words, once you're being forced to cut down on, on general social spending, how you feel about it is determined by your social conditioning, you know, your culture, your personality and such like. You know, it might be really mad or you might be going, yeah, it's not so bad. But when you're hungry, you sort of hit a completely different reality, particularly if you're hungry and your children are hungry. And what I'm saying, of course, is you rebel. You go to the government, uh, you go out onto the streets and ugly things happen. People kill each other and and this is the standard sort of trajectory towards revolution. It is massive fiscal crisis combined with the physical intruding into the social, as you might say. It's non-negotiable. It's what economists call uh, inelastic demand. You know, you are going to do whatever it takes to get food to eat. So the complex system turns into a simple system, to use that sort of language. So another dynamic that goes on, which in some ways might not sound as significant, but certainly is, is the collapse of social credibility of the regime. 
So this is often very difficult to identify, particularly in authoritarian regimes. So the great example here is the USSR before 1989. So here the general idea was everyone was assuming the USSR was going to carry on forever, you know, it's an authoritarian regime, Communist Party controlled all the media, um, everyone was forced to say great things about what was going on, and there was this sense of what has been called hyper-normality, which means on the surface everything looks fine, but underneath everything is, is rubbish, you know, everyone knows it's, it's fact, and I mean everyone, but no one can say so one way you can find out is, for instance, there's just loads of anti-regime jokes going around. So you have these little Freudian expressions of discontent, which give a hint. But of course, you know, 99% of commentators weren't using that methodology, that method of trying to work out what's happening. They were just looking at the headlines and, and the press releases. Anyway, the upshot of it is, as I'm sure you know, in 1989, the whole thing collapsed out of, out of nowhere in Verticommon. Well, this is because, in terms of private um, commitment to the regime, it had evaporated. So it didn't take that much to get your head around the idea this is exactly what has now happened with a neoliberal regime in the Western world. So 30, 40 years ago, you have what was called the social fact, as it were, coming out of World War Two, people who are definitely committed to the society, you know, the regime in the Western world, they trusted the government, their confidence in society. All of that has now evaporated to such an extent that when they do the surveys, you know, something like 10 to 20% of people trust the government, you know, down from 60, 70, 80% a generation ago. So something profound is happening. And of course, the Western elites will find out to their horror when the system does collapse because they'll realise no one's actually that bothered. And that's the point here. So the third example is um, obviously the COP conferences. So the COP conferences, they've been going on 30 years. So you might say for the first 10 years, you know, they weren't getting anywhere, but everyone gave them the benefit of the doubt. You know, it's difficult to to get everyone together to make these decisions. They're trying really hard, blah, blah, blah. And then maybe from years 10 to 20, people are going, you know what, this is really not working. Something else needs to be tried. Um, it's, it's, it's just dire. And then from years 20 to 30, everyone's just thinking it's a total joke. You know, like everyone knows it's gonna fail. The people who are involved in it knows it's going to fail. <laughs> it's just like a zombie social entity. So one of the sort of morbidly hilarious things about all this, of course, is that the powers to be say you have to reduce carbon emissions by 50% in the next eight years. And, you know, the paradox of all paradoxes is that there's no chance of that happening at all, unless, of course, there's a social revolution, which, of course, they count imagine and so they're in this sort of double bind of absolute stupidity let's put it like that all right so what i want to do here is you know i'm not just making some general social argument on the basis of you know past experience what i want to do is actually suggest that we can predict 
the inevitability of revolution, revolutionary episodes with quite a lot of precision. And I'm going to go through the mass, as you might say, uh, over the next uh, 15, 20 minutes. All right. So one way of starting with this is to identify a phenomenon that's quite counterintuitive. Uh, so I'm going to go through it quite slowly because even I sort of doubt it and then I do the maths and go, no, 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 it's right. So let's take something like terrorism, terrorism, right? So let's say that terrorism, you know, increases due to various tensions. So it goes from five terrorist attacks to 10 within a, a particular continent or the US. So there was five incidents a year, of, say up to 10 deaths, and now it's gone up to 10. So it's doubled. But the reality is that the likelihood of a massive terrorist attack, let's say of over a thousand deaths, goes from say 2% chance a year to 20%, i.e. the likelihood of a, a super outlier extreme event goes up by 10 times, whereas average events go up say by two times. So this is a robust empirical phenomenon, right? It's not, I'm not making this up, this happens, and I'll show mathematically how it works more in a, in a minute. But you can see this happening all the time. Obviously, with a terrorism situation, you can see that with the terror attacks before 9-11, which was significant, but mainly ignored, and then you had 9-11, which completely changed the political and military landscape. Um, so a massive outlier, creating a massive transformation. So on a more mundane level, coming back to my leaks on my uh, farm, you know, you can get gradually worse and worse winters and 10 or 20% of the leaks die. And then one winter, uh, it's minus 15 and 100% of the leaks die. It's suddenly, wham, bam, everything's gone. So a third sort of scenario here, along with terrorism and, and leaks, as you might say, is forest fires. So you think about forest fires, you know, 1% of California burns down, 2%. As the temperature increases, it stands to reason that you're just going to have a massive increase in the amount of fires that are going to start. So you think about starting a fire yourself. You know, if you throw a little match in it, not much happens. If you throw 10 matches in it, you're probably going to lie, but maybe only 20% of the time. If you throw a whole you know, bunch of petrol in it or something, suddenly you're 95% certain to, for the fire to start. So the same thing happens with temperature. As the temperature goes up, you know, 40 degrees, 45, 50, you get to a situation where you're suddenly jumping from 2 to 3% of, of the area burning to 20%, which is what happened in Australia. And also what happened in the village where it was 49 degrees in British Columbia, you know, it was 49 degrees. Surprise, surprise, three days later, the whole place burned down. Um, so it's what's called an S-curve. You know, it starts off gradually, the curve's going up, and suddenly it goes up almost vertically because you've got that tipping point. So let's look at this in a more sort of mathematical way. So 
one of the main scenarios in which there's going to be like a catastrophic ecological 9-11 event is the coincidental crash of crop crops, crop failures in the US, in Europe and in Russia all on the same year. So you can see how that works is, you know, one country has a massive loss of food production, but it can import, you know, from the other two areas. But if all three happen together, then you have this 9-11 sort of food crisis, people literally starving in these global north countries. The situation would be in the US and in Europe and in Russia, there's a massive crop failure. So you can see how this works. If there's a massive crop failure in one of those areas, then you'd be able to import from the other two areas. But obviously, if it happened in all three areas, there'd be a total non-linear disaster, people literally starving to death in global north countries. So let's say for the sake of argument, the likelihood of it happening in any one region in any one year is one chance in six. So the simple maths is the likelihood of it happening in all three regions in the same year is six times six times six, which I think is 198. In other words, one chance in 200 years. But we know that this situation is becoming exponentially worse. So let's say the situation gets, you know, doubles in how how bad it is. So instead of something like this happening one in six years, it happens in one in three years. This is arguably where we might be at the moment, in so much as every year there's some dramatic development in terms of crop failure in most of these countries. So let's say this is going to happen one in three years in US, Europe and Russia. So the chances of it happening in all three regions obviously is three times three times three, which is one in 27 years. So just take that in. Once the chances of something happens singly doubles, right, from one in six to one in three, the chance of it all happening together goes from one chance in 200 to one chance in 25. In other words, eight times more likely is eight times more likely to happen. Like it's one in one in two hundred years, don't need to worry about it. One in twenty five years, like that's gonna happen, right? So let's say as we enter, you know, the two thousand thirties, this is happening, say, one in every two years. So that's two times two times two, isn't it? So one in eight years, one in eight years, you're gonna have this catastrophic nine eleven ecological event. So how we can work this out is, let's say we want to work out the likelihood between 2030 and 2035. So in any year, we shake a dice on one in eight. So if you do the maths, that means the likelihood of this massive event, this 9-11 ecological event, is 60%. It's a 60% likelihood over those five years. So you're shaking the dice once every half every year for five years. So you might say, well, yeah, there's a significant 60% chance of such a massive social disruption that it triggers revolutionary episodes. But here's the point, right? Is that that's totally unrealistic because we're only looking at one particular
scenario of massive physical disruption. Um, that is crop failure in US, Europe and Russia. But as we enter into 2030s, we can make an argument uh, because we've backed up by the data that there's six and maybe more uh, possibilities, any one of which will create revolutionary episodes of social disruption. So I'm going to go through them and give you one or two numbers. So the first one is COVID stroke disease. So scientists have predicted this could be happening again within 10 years. So let's say for the sake of argument, during the 2030s, there's a one in 10 chance each year of having a massive COVID or even worse sort of pandemic. Secondly, it's predicted that India will lose 30% of its wheat production by 2030 with the possibility of massive famines. And in China, you're looking at wet bulb temperatures where it's impossible to attend to crops um, with millions of people getting heat stroke or even dying. It's the hottest summer ever in China this year. So we put those two together. There's a one in 10 chance of a class of agriculture in the two biggest countries in the world. Um, so the third scenario is the massive um, level of refugees coming out of the tropics um, during the 2030s. So a peer-reviewed paper predicts a two degrees centigrade there will be 1,000 million refugees. So that's what around 2035, maybe earlier, maybe later. So it's a fair bet that one in 10 chance each year of hundreds of millions of refugees uh, coming out of Africa, Central America, destroying the world economy, massive social disruption. So the fourth scenario is forest fires, as we've just discussed. Um, Peer-reviewed paper says within 20 years, um, the massive fires that Australia had will be happening on an average year. So that's 20% of the forest burning down an average year. So again, once we get to 2030s, we can say there's a one in 10 chance of 30, 40, 50%. And then the second sort of transition into what you might call complexity, and this is what makes the game so popular, is you think you might win, you know, it depends whether he lands on you or you land on him, and you're building your hotels, and it's looking pretty good, and, you know, you just need one more success, as it were, and you're on the go. And that sort of transitions into a, a, a new phase transition, which is not complex, it's what's called simple. And the brutality of that phase transition is what sort of does people's heads in. Because suddenly you're doing quite well, and then you land on Mayfair, you know, and they've got a hotel on it, I'm sure some people <laughs> know what that feels like, and it's like suddenly you're doing pretty well, and suddenly there's not a chance in hell you're going to win. The other guy is going to win. And, you know, there's one chance in 10 billion that you're going to win because you just do not have, you know, you don't have the houses anymore and the other guy's got loads and you're, you're, you're a zombie, a dead man walking. Um, so you can see this analogy here. It's not an analogy. It's the same type of transition um, that goes from, you know, climate's pretty bad to, oh my God, we're going to have these big episodes. Oh, no going to have these big episodes in conjunction with each other. In other words, there's a whole load of hotels that I could, you know, land on 
one after another, and you're a dead duck, as they say. So, in conclusion, the first thing we need to understand is we are not talking here about climate change. We're not even talking about putting carbon into the atmosphere. We're talking about an interrelated complex of, of elements that always go together from this point onwards. Extreme weather, disease, war, social disruption, um, revolutionary episodes is the same phenomenon. It's, you can't separate them out. The social and the physical are intermeshed. It's one thing. So we need a category, which is this complex. The second thing is it's going to happen. It is inevitable. You know, a few people listening to this might say, well, you never know. You might reduce carbon emissions. They're not going to. You know, the predictions are carbon emissions will go up by 14% during the 2030s. Even if they did, all the delayed effects of carbon, you know, the carbon lag, uh, global dimming and such like. So nothing's going to change the trajectory for the next 10, 15 years. So when the UN says, you know, 1.5 degrees is no longer credible, what you know they're really saying, and I'll, leave it, I'll finish this, this on this, finish up with this, is what they're really saying is, revolution, uh, avoiding revolution is no longer credible. Avoiding revolutionary episodes in the next 10 to 15 years is no longer credible. And that's the, the deal. And apologies, by the way, that I've just been moved to a new cell, so there's a bit of background noise then. Um, yeah, there's a bit of background noise. <laughs> okay, I'll speak to you next time. Bye.